We continue now with this week's series of interviews with recent Presidential Rank Award winners. My next guest probably knows as much about disasters and federal responses to them as anyone. Her experience with the Federal Emergency Management Agency dates to debris management after 9-11. Now she's the Region 3 Administrator. Marianne Tierney joins me now. Ms. Tierney, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me today. And you have been in emergency management a long time and even before FEMA, correct? Yes, I have been in emergency management since 1999, where I started with the New York City Emergency Management. All right. And your first immersion, I guess, in federal response was in the moments after 9-11. I kind of consider that the pre-Katrina FEMA, and there's a different FEMA in some ways after Katrina. But let's talk about the FEMA of the 9-11 era. What happened and what did you do in relation to the debris afterwards? Yeah, well, I worked really closely with FEMA after 9-11 because I was one of the leads for the recovery operations that the city was undertaking. So there were a couple aspects of that. First, the debris operation, like you mentioned, moving debris from ground zero. I worked really closely with the Army Corps and with FEMA on that. And then also FEMA's reimbursement program, the public assistance program. I did a lot of work with our city agencies and FEMA on reimbursing the city for their costs associated with 9-11. It sounds like there was a financial management and accounting type of task, but also a physical task working with people with front-end loaders and dump trucks. Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect of emergency management is that it can involve both extensive field work, but also significant policy and desk work. Yeah. And so what's your educational background, experiential background that got you to where you could juggle both of those halves of the task? Well, I went to American University. I have an undergraduate degree in political science. And while I was at American, I participated in several internships, including one with the D.C. Emergency Management Agency and one with FEMA back when I was in college. And then from there, I, like I mentioned, worked at New York City Emergency Management, and while I was working full-time, I went to NYU and received a graduate degree in public administration. All right, and just going back to that 9-11 time, then you saw this, the aftermath, anyhow, physically with your own two eyes? Yeah, New York City Emergency Management was located in Seven World Trade Center, and so on the day of 9-11, that's where I was in our emergency operations center. And what prompted you to leave the city government and join FEMA? Well, before I joined FEMA, I left New York City government for Philadelphia government. I was the emergency management director in Philadelphia, and I was there for about four years. And Philadelphia is where FEMA Region 3 is located. And when the regional administrator position for FEMA Region 3 opened up, somebody at FEMA called me and suggested that I apply. And that's how I got into working at FEMA through my personal emergency management network, alerting me to the position and then applying. And then I've been the regional administrator at FEMA now for over 12 years. Got it. So you had a rep, in other words. Well, emergency management is a really small community, especially at the more senior levels. And so it was nice for someone to alert me to the position. And of course, then I had to go through the whole SES process to apply and be qualified and approved. Sure. We're speaking with Marianne Tierney. She is Region 3 Administrator at FEMA and a recent Presidential Rank Award recipient. And then it wasn't that long then till I guess, Region 3 was the main response center for Hurricane Sandy? 
Yeah, so I started in Region 3 in 2010, and Region 3, we covered the mid-Atlantic states, and there was, uh, at the beginning of Hurricane Sandy, significant concern that Region 3 would be uh, severely impacted by that storm. Uh, Then, uh, fortunately for Region 3, unfortunately for FEMA Region 2 and New York and New Jersey, the storm shifted slightly north and really was devastating to the New York, New Jersey metro area. And many people in Region 3, including myself, responded to Hurricane Sandy to support New York, New Jersey, and FEMA. Region two. Right. Three and two are kind of, I mean, it's a boundary in administrative standpoint, but really it's kind of one region in some sense, geographically right. and everything yeah. else. The Northeast is a very compact region. In fact, I can see FEMA Region 2, New Jersey, from my office in Center City, Philadelphia. Right. And I want to talk about that. But first, I want to ask you, what do you think are the big differences between working at the city administrative level and at the federal level? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, at the city level, every day you're directly interacting with citizens on a variety of daily challenges, water main breaks, building collapses, multi-alarm fires, special events. uh, And so it's very tactical. And then coming to FEMA, you know, we do a lot of direct services to individuals and communities through our disaster relief and recovery programs, but we also have a very extensive policy arm. We regulate the floodplain. We are involved in offsite nuclear emergency planning. So the scope of what I do at the federal level is much broader and, and the scale is much broader. I would say that's the main difference in my observation. And what do you think it is that got the presidential rank award for you? That's a great question. I mean, it's really humbling to have been bestowed this award, which was obviously a remarkable accomplishment for any senior executive in the federal government. And for me, I look at it as really a reflection of my team. You know, no leader does these things alone. And it really takes a whole team to lift you up, to lift the whole organization up. So I really credit the work of the FEMA Region 3 team for my success in being recognized. And I think our collective success over the past 12 plus years that I've been the regional administrator that this is just a reflection of the team. You know, you don't you don't do anything like this alone. And it seems like FEMA has done a steady job of improving relationships between the federal entities and the local emergency management entities. I mean, I think Katrina, again, you know, down in New Orleans was a pressure test for that relationship and for how response should work. Does that seem to have been a turning point in that management aspect of the intergovernmental relationship, do you think? To be direct, even when I was working in New York City before Katrina, I had very excellent relationships with our FEMA regional office and the individuals from FEMA headquarters. You know, every organization has watershed moments, right? Has moments that change the trajectory and the dynamic of that organization. And certainly Hurricane Katrina was one of those events for FEMA. And FEMA, through congressional action and through organizational changes, made substantial adjustments to how they operate and their policies post-Katrina. And I think that's been reflected as the agency is much more operationally focused, uh, leans forward. Congress gave FEMA immense authority post-Katrina to pre-position resources and people so that they were not going to be late to need. And I think, we you know, we continue that evolution through a variety of events, whether it was the Hurricane Sandy Recovery Improvement Act or during COVID and now post-COVID, FEMA has made substantial adjustments to its operations. And part of the, I think, the ethos of emergency management is continuous learning and improvement. And I think FEMA has shown that over the years through many of its large events. And do the regional administrators get together either virtually or in person periodically? And when you do, what do you talk about? 
Yes, we are connected almost daily. I talk to my regional counterparts. Uh, in fact, I was just this morning speaking to another regional administrator about an issue of common interest where we could partner. So we do get together regularly. We do calls as a group on a regular basis because, again, we're all over the country. And then we convene at least quarterly for in-person meetings. And just this past week, I was meeting with some of our regional administrators and our field leadership where we were talking about areas of common interest in providing disaster operations to communities and survivors of post-presidential declarations. Sure. And what about relationships with private industry? Because one of the things that we've learned in recent disasters, you know, in the last couple of decades, is that if you want certain things delivered, you know, often companies have the logistics and the supplies there to a greater extent than the government could ever hope to. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, what I would kind of start with is that emergency management is a team sport, and there are a lot of different partners that contribute to the success of responding to an emergency and then eventually recovering from it. So, you know, government is one part of that solution. It's not the only member on the team. The private sector is obviously very critical. Most critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector. So getting a community back online and stabilized Having the private sector partnership is really critical to that. Supply chain and, like you mentioned, inventory. Most organizations do just-in-time inventory even today. And so ensuring that the private sector has the necessary levers to ensure that the supply chain can remain open and functional is really critical. The nonprofit sector, right, So, which is not – private sector for profit, but the nonprofit sector, non-governmental organizations are also really critical to being prepared and responding and recovering. You think about the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and countless other nonprofit NGO organizations that contribute to helping people after disasters. And then, frankly, the American public is really critical in responding to and recovering from disasters. You know, normally, you know, in most disasters, it starts with your neighbors. It's people helping each other. Neighbors are the, you know, the first responders even before 911 arrives. And final question, do your friends, family, and neighbors ask you what they should stock up in their basements just in case? My neighbors usually take cues from if I'm tying down our porch furniture, whether they should uh, they should be getting ready or not. So yeah, no, we definitely are take a signal to the rest of the block in our neighborhood, and certainly I get a lot of questions about what I have in my go bag. Yeah, sometimes I wish I lived next door to a FEMA regional administrator. Marianne <laughs> Tierney is a Region 3 administrator at FEMA. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks a lot. You have a great day. And she's also a recent Presidential Rank Award recipient. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. 
as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. 
but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out 
not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.